Welcome to the iSmart Podcast Show with Tom Rogers, founder and CEO of iSmart Networks. We help connect entrepreneurs with key partnerships to build financial freedom. The average millionaire has seven streams of income, and our guests reveal how they created multiple streams in their businesses. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. Stick around for the end of the show, where I'll reveal how you could be our next guest on one of the fastest growing daily transformational podcasts on the planet in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. All right. Thanks for joining iSmart Podcast on the show today. We actually have the real Richard Hendricks from HBO Silicon Valley. Um, Al Wagner, founder of Anacode. Just kidding. He's, he's not on the HBO Silicon Valley show, but he does have a pretty phenomenal company. Uh, deals a lot with uh, storage, uh, AWS, like Amazon. So it's going to be really, really interesting to have this podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Al, for being on the show today. Yeah. Nice to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. And so we can get to we can get to Anacode and exactly you know why people call you the real Richard Hendricks, uh, but you know could we go into a little bit of, of your founder story? Like, where did you grow up and uh, and how was your first like business successes, things of that nature? Okay, uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Spent most of my uh, younger years there. Um, I went to undergraduate at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Got an electrical engineering degree there. Then I moved to California in the early eighties and went to Stanford, got a master's degree in computer science at Stanford. And uh, that has to do a little bit with the Richard Hendrick story. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was not an entrepreneur till I got to California. And when I moved to California, Northern California, I didn't even know I was moving to Silicon Valley until you know, three months after I got here. And then I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And this was the days when it was still called when the Silicon Valley of Santa Clara Valley was called the Valley of Heart's Delight. And the main product was uh, fruit. <laughs> and this is around the 90s or so? 80s. 80s. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, you, so you kind of were in the beginning stages of you know, Silicon Valley kind of transferring into more of like the tech industry. How were those yeah. like first interactions like being, uh, being in that area? Well, the first interaction, my, my, my first taste of Silicon Valley was I had been at my first job, which was GTE government systems, doing, uh, I can't say, <laughs> spook work for three-letter agencies outside Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. And uh, after that, I got a call from a recruiter that said, hey, how would you like to work at Atari? And you remember Atari, the yeah. game company? Oh, yeah. So Atari at the time was owned by Time Warner. And uh, Nolan Bushnell had left a long time ago. But so I, so I go from GT government systems, very stable job, to Atari, corporate research. And I'm working on a music synthesis project. Super cool. Back, back in Philadelphia, I was a piano player. And in college, I picked up guitar. So I really was into music. And my background was in digital signal processing, or DSP. And uh, so... I got to mix together my love of music with my love of DSP and technology at Atari because we were working on a music synthesis chip. Oh, so was so, Atari, was uh, this kind of the early stages of Atari? Was it, or where was this company at? This was in uh, 1983 or so. So Atari was already pretty well known. They were getting a lot of revenue, I thought. 
at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but uh, what I didn't realize is that three hundred million dollar losses in a quarter are not sustainable. Doesn't no, <laughs> not at all. Doesn't sound very sustainable. So uh, one of the things I'll, I'll go back to is uh, so I call my parents back in Pennsylvania to tell them I'm leaving GT government systems to go to Atari. The very first thing my dad says, oh, what will happen to your pension? I was like, dad, I'm 22 years old. I don't care. Who cares about a pension, right? That's what I care. Yeah. So, but uh, then, then when I heard that, you know, I, I joined Atari and I'm having the time of my life and then they have their first the time Warner has their earnings report and they say an Atari lost $300 million last quarter. Jeez. I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> And then I also found out about square footage of offices. They had 60,000 square feet of lobby space in 50 buildings all over Silicon Valley. Also not sustainable. None of those things are. So were your parents kind of, were your parents entrepreneurs or business owners or no, they were just- My my dad was a professor of German. Okay. My mom was, uh, and these days you call them executive admins. Okay. Uh, to the CEO of an insurance company in downtown Philadelphia. Okay, so there's so there's really no like uh, entrepreneur kind of background at all. Like you were the first that was really really went into business. Uh, so did it was a, Atari was a pretty well I guess well developed company at that point. Did you what did you eventually do? Did you did you find another opportunity after that? Um, or did you? Well, after Atari, you know, so in the middle of Atari, uh, I I was going to Stanford, and. That was from 83 to 86. From, from 83 to 85, I was at Atari. 85, uh, the company had been sold to the Trammell family, the founders of Commodore Computer. Mm-hmm. And the Trammell brothers, uh, I don't even forget their names, Sam and somebody else, and the father, Jack, um, had taken over. The company had gone from 6,000 employees as Atari to 300 employees through eight layoffs. Wow. The ninth layoff was me and another guy, <laughs> two guys, in uh, 1985. And I was like, oh, how am I going to go to Stanford if I don't have an honors co-op company paying my way? Right. So I went back to GT Government Systems for the next five years, from 85 to 90. And uh, they, GT did, to their credit, they ended up uh, paying part of the Stanford bill. I paid part of it myself because I wanted to get my degree there. Yeah, and G- then GT paid for the rest of roughly a third of the classes I had left for my master's. Yeah, that's great. So, so that kind of just kind of paved the way to you for you to finish your degree. Your degree was more centered around you said like uh, like was it engineering or something? Computer science. Yeah, it was computer science. science. So I was I had to make a decision uh, when I applied to Stanford in 1982-83 timeframe if I was going to be a computer science guy or an EE guy because I was an EE undergraduate. Right. And the reason I picked CS is because in my day job doing defense electronics, I was writing all this software at the time, my main language, Fortran. And I was like, what the hell is an operating system? What the, sorry for my, language. Um, what the <laughs> hell is a, 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 a compiler? What the hell is a database? Yeah. So I was in, very intrigued by that stuff. And right around that time, the book, uh, Gödel Escher Bach came out. Kurt Gödel was the incompleteness theorem mathematician. Moritz Escher, the artist, Johann Sebastian Bach. What they had in common, Douglas Hofstadter pointed out, he's a professor of computer science at, I think, the University of Indiana. He wrote a book which won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 1982. 
And awesome. uh, it popularized computer science. And so I, I read that book, and it's one of these very heavy tomes uh, that you can you can read about five to ten minutes, and then you got to put it down. <laughs> one so, of those. so that's what I did, and I was so intrigued with it that I picked computer science instead of EE when I went to Stanford. So, so you graduated and you said 86, right? 86. Um, and when you said at, G, at GTE till the 90s, and then what, what after the 90s did you, uh, what was your first kind of business kind of like, like uh, entry point or, or maybe like where this like aha moment where you're just, all right, I'm done with, you know, corporations. I kind of want to build my own thing. So you got to go a long ways past the 90s. Well, not a long ways. So I, I basically didn't care that much about money because DSP engineers got paid a lot of money to view it. So yeah. I did a stint in pro and consumer audio from in the, most of the 1990s. Pro audio at a company called Studer Editech. Studer uh, Revox was a pro audio company based in Switzerland. And uh, I went from being DSP engineer to VP of engineering in the span of five, the five years that I was there. Then, uh, then I went to uh, a company called Command Audio, which was doing kind of like podcasts, but using the FM radio to send it to a custom receiver that RCA built for us and distributed mm -hmm. and stuff. So um, I basically, th this is important. I had, uh, I've had nine jobs, nine employers, and almost all of them have been startups. That's really, I, yeah, that's really important I stuff. I counted yeah. Atari as a startup. Yeah, what we try to what we try to do, like a lot of the times, you know, when we're talking to guests, is kind of identify the like the seed points that an entrepreneur goes through to kind of position them or put them in a position where they're starting a company. Because it, it seems like there's a lot of uh, re repeatable patterns with different with individuals uh, in in starting businesses. A yeah, lot of several guys I've seen as consultants, right? They were consultants for companies. They they worked at a company. They learned like the the marketing the campaigns and all the systems of these higher level companies for for many years and then they felt a little restricted and they became advisors or consultants and then they started working with companies you know being consulting them for this that and the other right and then that kind of like sparked this new idea that then then they launched to this company and became incredibly successful so those yeah, you had nine jobs right my, my story is slightly different than that and i will tell you something so uh, without going into too many details, my wife and I have been married for 20 years. We've been together for 24. When we met in 1996, she already had four kids, two boys and two girls. And I had two boys from a previous marriage. So we got together and I told all six of our kids, don't wait till you're 47 years old to start a company. My oldest son, Adam, started a company right out of Cal Poly with his degree. And, you know, if you're, do you have kids, Tom? Yeah, two kids. Okay, so two kids. So usually we really like it when kids take our advice. When Adam told me when he on the day he graduated from Cal Poly that he was going to take my advice, I thought, oh, great. But then I realized, wait, he hasn't even had a job yet. <laughs> so he right. spent the next 10 years doing his own startup. And he sold 14,000 units, these little portable speakers called Trash Amps. That, uh, that Adam uh, designed and built and figured out himself. And he, he met these guys in Shenzhen in China that, that did turnkey manufacturing and packaging and everything. So now he just, whenever he needs, you know, a thousand more units, he just sends them a PO. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. 
So you, so you kind of, you were, you had your business at that point. So kind of like you So Yeah. Like but a, okay. So in the nineties, it was pro and consumer audio in two thousands. It was a uh, startup land again. I was working at a startup called Morphix doing uh, base station chips. So we were trying to sell to people like uh, Ericsson and Huawei. And mm -hmm. we had one company, Marconi Mobile in Italy. So this was the 2G to 3G transformation. And that was the first time I started realizing how compression might help. Started thinking about it. So Morphix was another one of those uh, 70, 80% of VCs failures. Morphix ran out of money in 2002, laid everybody off. And 2002 was the only time in my career where I've been unemployed. Where I, um, Morphix laid everybody off. We all cried and left. And then uh, I was like, well, where am I going to find a job? Because in 2002, it was really hard for engineers to find jobs. Mm -hmm. So eventually, it, this is funny, I, after Morphix, I talked to Texas Instruments, uh, the guy who was eventually my boss, Joe Gray, guy in Palo Alto, and Gray Chip, the, the company he started, had been acquired two years before that for you know a modest amount of money, but a lot of money for Joe, um, by Texas Instruments. And they were building wireless base station chips. So you notice the theme here is the DSP stuff. So I'm still, you know, I'm in my late 30s, early 40s, doing, still doing DSP. And uh, I go to TI, and I think this is really cool. You know, I finally got a job. So uh, Joe retires. I take over his job managing the group, the wireless base station group, chip group. Mm -hmm. And I go all over the world selling chips for Texas Instruments. Awesome. That sounds super then, cool. So this is around I, 2000, 2003, before. So. 2000, yeah, this was 2002 I joined TI. 2002, I got laid off at Morphix. 2002, I got rehired or hired by Texas Instruments. In 2006, I got this idea worked out for lossy compression for systems, DSP systems that have never used compression before. Lossy. Okay. Lossy. Now, lossy makes a lot of people nervous. And this is one of the things that I, in reflection, I learned about startups. Don't aim for little markets that don't need your shit to begin with. So nobody in medical imaging or wireless base station processing or test and measurement equipment needed lossy compression. This is part of the reason that uh, Samplify fell apart. So after TI, I did Samplify. Mm -hmm. TI... I was there 2002 to 2006. 2006, 2013 was Samplify, my $23 million crater in the ground. <laughs> so so uh, we, we raised uh, Series A in 2007, 13 million from two VCs, including a guy I'd gone to college with, Bruce Sachs. Great, great VC. One of the best VCs you'll ever meet. If you ever get a chance to work with Bruce, work with Bruce. Then um, in... Uh, uh, 2013, we run out of money. 2011, we, we get Schlumberger, the oil and gas company, to fund 11 million. So now we got 12 million plus 11, we got 23 million in. 20, in, in 2013, the wheels fall off. We don't have any revenue. We got nothing. You know, we, we got, a, I, I, had, I had developed 55 patents. Wow. So we ended up selling our patent portfolio to Altera. I don't know if you know the semiconductor business, but there was a duopoly in a, in a part of the semiconductor business called FPGAs uh, for as many years. Uh, this goes back to the early 80s. And uh, Altera and Xilinx were the two FPGA 800-pound gorillas. Uh, Intel purchased 
Altera in 2015 for a lot of money. I like to tell people they purchased it because Altera owned Samplify's patents, but that's not true. <laughs> but you had a portion of it, right? Like, yes. <laughs> you were in there. So now, now I'll get to my startup story. So Samplify runs out of money in 2013. I joined Amazon Lab 126. Okay. People, people have heard of the Kindle e-reader. Yeah, yeah. They've heard of the uh, possibly maybe have heard of the Amazon Fire Phone, which was on the market for three months in 2014. And they may have heard of the wildly successful, surprisingly successful Amazon Echo. Right. You talk to it and it plays you music. It tells you what your headlines are. It tells you what the weather is. Everyone has those in their house. Everyone has those in their house. Well, the people who started it worked at Lab 126. Super and cool. I had, I had a great time working at Amazon. So why did I leave? Um, so the Fire Phone launched in June of 2014. It got killed for good reason in September of 2014. I was moved to a machine learning group as a principal engineer. So I had, you know, there were 300 principal engineers in a company at that time of 150,000 employees. So it was a cush job. I get a call in October of 2014 from AWS. Guy says, Mr. Wagner, I hear you're a compression expert. I said, well, I've done some lossy compression. How can I help you? And he said, how much do you think you could compress 512 bytes at a time losslessly? Have you ever seen the movie, uh, Princess Bride. There's a line in Princess Bride that says, do you always begin your conversations this way? Because there's a guy, there, one of the actors in there says, uh, you, you, you killed my, do you have seven fingers on your left hand? And it's a, you know, it's a weird question. Yeah, it's a weird question. Six questions, six fingers <laughs> on your left hand. And, and the guy says, uh, do you always begin your conversations this way? And the guy said, well, uh, the guy who killed my father had six fingers on his left hand and I'm going to get him someday. Right. So this guy says to me, you know, how much can you can do losses compression 512 bytes at a time? And I say what any self-respecting compression guy would say, send me some data and I'll give you an opinion. <laughs> so three months later, he makes available to me a lot of data. And this is why he cared. This guy was buying a lot of solid state disks for at the time, 48 Amazon Web Services data centers every year. Let's say hundreds of millions. And what he was planning to do with my losses compression thing was make transfers faster and cheaper, lower power, et cetera. So he makes this data available to me. I give him a number of 1.5. Well, 1.5 to 1 lossless compression of 512 bytes at a time would have saved Amazon. I don't know if they implemented it or not, but it would have saved them $200 million a year. Jeez. And that, that was way more than I was making. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I have pondered that for a long time. And uh, then I decided uh, maybe I'd give it a try. So that's what I did. Now, I wrote a paper describing how they could do what this guy wanted to do, 512 bytes at a time. But Anacode is doing something way different. So, so how is Anacode different? Anacode's different because we're doing massively parallel stuff. And the massively parallel, it was obvious to me, but I'm a tech weenie, that um, we should make the block size a programmable thing. So instead of 512 bytes, let's say you make it a megabyte, a lot of data. And if you say, 
how, how many different letters or words or sequences are in a megabyte? You can answer that question. What GZIP, the winner, you know, Abraham Lumble and Jacob Zib, what they invented in 77, takes a 32K byte window and it kind of slides it along whenever it's compressed. And it says, here's the new stuff outside the 32K byte window. Have we seen at least three bytes of the new stuff inside the old stuff? Now, uh, you've probably been around high tech or at least observed it long enough to know that there is no technology that lasts 43 years. 43 years is 2020 minus 1977 when yeah. GZIP was invented. Yeah, it so doesn't last a long no. All I've done is said, boy, there's an opportunity. And if I do lossless compression as a storage service, then you know, a lot of people are probably going to want that. And now cloud is such a hot thing. People say, wow, cloud is not as cheap as, I, as they made it out to be. <laughs> You know, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but in some ways, here's a number that your audience probably doesn't know. 20% of all cloud revenue comes from storage. 20%. Wow. So Amazon is on the, uh, the, the path to make $40 billion of revenue this year. So 40 billion times 20%, 8 billion. $8 billion of revenue from storage in 2020. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so essentially you guys take that storage or that data or whatever it is and you guys compress it to a way where it's, you know, much faster, less, less time, you know, less. And maybe more compression right. than GZIP gets. Okay. So, so you, did you get around a funding to be able to, to initially start it or do you just kind of like start okay, it? Okay. So let's talk about funding. So I had saved up some money over the years. Um, my former wife sometimes occasionally called me a cheap German. <laughs> And I said, I'm not a cheap German, I'm a frugal German. <laughs> so when I left Amazon in 2015, I had to figure out a way to pay the bill. So home equity loan and uh, borrowing and savings did the job for about two years. After that, I had to get some extra funds. So I got extra funds in the form of a convertible note. It's debt for a while, and then the debt can convert at a premium typically 20% um, if the company gets funded. So I'm currently carrying three $100,000 US convertible notes. One from my best friend, who is a retired VP at Broadcom. He and I started work the same together day together at GT Government Systems. One from my stepson, Rhett, number 85 on the New York Giants, who just retired. And one from my 92-year-old mother, who has saved and scrimped her whole life and now gets to help her son out when he needs it. That's awesome. Cool. So you went more of like a family close contact kind of way. Of family close contact savings and home equity loans. Why did you do that after, even though you had, you know, quite some connections in Silicon Valley for a lot of funding, you even had, you know, simplify right where you got 23 mil from these other investors. Did you have a, a bit of a bad taste in your mouth from those, other VCs and you just didn't want to be kind of pushed no, in one direction or the other? A strange thing happened to the investment business when cloud happened in roughly 2012, 2015 timeframe. All the VCs said, oh, you don't need 10 million to get started. We're just going to give you 2 million. And you better have like 50,000 users before you have any revenue. And we want to know how many users you have. Back when I raised money for Samplify, Things were different. You just needed one reference customer. 
And in Samplify's case, the reference customer was a well-known uh, uh, guy who started his own chip design firm. I met with him in Boston in my 2006 timeframe, and he called my VC buddy up, the guy I'd gone to college with, and said, yeah, if, if Al builds this, we would buy a lot of those. So reference customer versus actual eyeballs. Yeah. That was the shift that happened from when I got Samplify funded to when I did Anika. Do you so, think it's the same now? Yeah, for sure. It's, it, reference customers are worth zero, as far as I can tell, except to certain VCs. And I can't say much more about that. Yeah, I didn't get funding in the car wash business until I had real customers. I, it's a pretty, I had real customers, real accounts, things were mostly established. And then there, you yeah, know, that's the way we're going. That's the way Anacode is going. Okay. Um, we're going to have real customers very soon. And you can imagine if, if you were in the Mercedes business and you were selling a Mercedes for $55,000 US instead of $80,000 US, um, you'd probably have a lot of business if it was still really a Mercedes. Mm -hmm. So think about what, what uh, people say now about cloud storage. They say, Jesus, this is a lot more expensive than I thought. I thought this was supposed to save us money. Anacode comes in and says, hey, we have a way to lower your cost by 35%. I think that will be very attractive. Extremely attractive. Yeah, so where is it at right now as far as like launch to? I know you, you probably already have a few customers already, correct? We have a couple. Yeah, I can't say too much about it because of non-disclosure agreements, but... Um, yeah, we have people kicking the tires. And one of the things that's unique about Anacode is we, we know what kind of data we're compressing and we check it all the time. So we divide things, we divide the world of data into four buckets. The four buckets are already compressed, integers, IoT or sensor data, inter Internet of Things, IoT or sensor data, mm -hmm. floating point, binary floating point data, and that's high performance computing, supercomputing machine learning, AI, <laughs> and the fourth, if it fails the first three, we throw it in the fourth bucket, which includes text. Mm -hmm. Text is the only thing that GZIP was designed to compress. It wasn't designed to compress binary floats. It wasn't designed to compress binary ints. And if you give a zip file to zip, it says, oh, I'm happy to make this file 5% to 10% larger. No extra charge. <laughs> no extra charge. I always got that confused when I went to convert things and it like increased in storage size. And I'm like, there you go. I'm like, now, why am I converting it? And then it makes it more like this didn't make any now sense. I will tell you the secret that I know the answer to, but very few other people do. What is the mix of data that's stored on cloud? That's a very important answer. Knowing that is really, that's the key to losses compression. Okay. So if you say Amazon web services, they make 8 billion with a B dollars a year from storage. How, what kind of data are they storing in the mix of already compressed binary ints, binary floats, and text? And if you can convert <coughs> those and then save a bunch of money, if you know what's in there, yeah, and then you can charge for that and make a ridiculous amount of money. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. you're identifying things that, you're, you're identifying ways for things to be more efficient, but how do you yeah. know which which kind of storage is, is, is being utilized by Amazon? Um, that, the, the kind of storage doesn't matter. Um, there are only two kinds of physical, well, at, in the cloud, there are only two kinds, maybe three kinds of physical storage. There are solid state disks, SSDs, which everybody's familiar with. There are hard disk drives, HDDs, 
And for some vendors, I can't, again, I can't say much about this. For some cloud vendors, they still use tape. And tape is by far the cheapest way to store data. Okay. But, but if the IoT, the floating. You help all three of those media. Oh, okay. So it doesn't really matter like how it's being stored, but then the IoT, the floating text in the cloud being identified. Yeah, you let Anico take care of that. You just say, please store this away. I don't care what you do with it. I'm going to read back all the bits. And as long as you return the bits that I gave you, I'm happy. So curious, does this have any kind of correlation with Bitcoin and mining and all that stuff? Uh, I have gotten a lot of inquiries. You know, I have a lot of contacts on LinkedIn. And uh, I've gotten a lot of inquiries from people doing Bitcoin mining. I don't know why. I imagine that a lot someday of I will find out why. A lot of computing, you know. You have to have these huge computers to be able to, to, be able to mine, right? They have a lot of storage. They I mean, nice, yeah, I assume they have a lot of storage because there's got to be a reason why they, you know, I just saw a post recently and saying that there's, an, there's, there's an enough energy that, that's like seven power plants to operate all the mining that's being done through Bitcoin currently. Like the amount of consumable energy is ridiculous. And I don't know if that's just from computing power to be able to, to, be able to process the, you know, the calculations to mine the coins or the storage associated as well. I don't know if it's it's coming yeah, and, and I, I don't know either but your your comment about power consumption is an interesting one and i want yeah. to tell a story that's related to anacode which also explains why uh amazon and microsoft and google have things called you know about microservices and containers and kubernetes not too familiar with those now okay so this is the new way if they anybody ever says to you we have cloud native software that's what they're using. They're using microservices or containers and Kubernetes. Now, the uh, the interesting part is that, uh, let's see, what was I gonna say? What were we talking about right before that? The uh, power consumption. Oh, power consumption, oh yeah. So there was a guy named Jonathan Kumi, K-O-O-M-E-Y. He was at my alma mater, Stanford, for a while when he did this work. He asked the question in roughly 2011, how much power of world percentage of power generated do data centers consume? And you can imagine that a real important parameter there is uh, the server power, because mm -hmm. data centers have a lot of servers. Data centers are basically storage, networking, and compute. So you got to shove the data from storage to compute, and then you got to do something with it, and then you put the results back to storage. It's very simple. So Jonathan Kumi said, how do I think about power consumption of servers in clouds? And he, he did this really, what I thought was clever thing. He said, one third of servers are always busy. One third of servers are sometimes busy. One third of servers are comatose. And he came up with the definition of comatose. And if you, if you Google comatose servers on, yeah, yeah, yeah Google comatose servers, you'll get Jonathan Kumi. And, uh, Funny. A third, and a comatose server is one that has done nothing but say, yes, I'm still alive for six months. Yeah, that's a lot of loss of energy right there. Yeah. Now, there's two answers to why, why did they over-provision? Why did they buy so many extra servers? And the easy answer is Black Friday. AWS runs their own uh, Amazon website. You know, we all get junk on AWS. We say, I need a, another... Uh, I need another quarter motor oil, or I need another blue pen, or I need another, uh, I don't know, 
toner cartridge. Mm-hmm. So in order to run their business, they need computers. Black Friday is their busiest day. But now that they have AWS, they don't want to shut down General Motors or any of these other people that are hosting their websites on their thing. So on Black Friday, they need a lot of capacity. So they've got to buy a lot of servers just for one or two days a year. That's one answer. The other answer is they didn't know how much capacity they were going to need in 2006 when when AWS got started. And uh, so they bought a lot of servers and they just didn't know. So they just bought way too many. So that's my best guess as to why they have comatose servers. Now, comatose servers are are, uh, basically a free resource to companies like Anacode. If we can you, schedule our you work, guys can utilize that storage, like that additional storage space as well, correct? It's not storage. It's compute. Okay. It's only compute. It's servers. Servers are only compute. Servers, they might have some storage. Do you think that maybe Bitcoin miners could utilize that space eventually for mining? So Bitcoin miners are mostly where power is very cheap. Where is that in the world? Mongolia. Okay. You will, uh, if you know Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA, he warned Wall Street for months, for quarters, that NVIDIA was going to have a little hiccup when the Bitcoin miners in Mongolia stopped buying GPUs for doing Bitcoin mining. Yeah, there's a lot of transition right now. It's like we're on the cusp of like this whole Bitcoin explosion. So it's been really interesting to see. You know, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, any, anybody that's trying to make a fast buck, which is how I think about the Bitcoin thing, maybe I shouldn't, but that's how I think about it. I yeah. tend to stay away from. So I am not a, necessarily a fan of, of Bitcoin and the uh, their competitors. Yeah. So so going back into Anacode. So essentially, you know, there's you guys are saving up to thirty five percent of you know the uh, storage. You know that the whatever that company is utilizing. You have a couple companies that are in the process of you know working saving with saving thirty five percent and getting faster transfers. Phenomenal. And then, so as far as uh, like revenues, how are, how are the revenues going to be produced? Are you just charging like a, like per like terabyte of uh, information yes. that's converted and then you're charging that? And, to the and, and we, we, our, our pricing model is very simple. Uh, at Amazon, you pay, they like to say 2.1 cents per gigabyte per month. Anacode doesn't say that. We say $21 per terabyte per month. So yeah, we've crazy. multiplied and, and, and we found that if you tell people you're paying cents per gigabyte per month, they stop doing math. Yeah. If you tell them $21 per terabyte per month, they continue to do math. So $21 per terabyte for AWS storage, S3 storage, becomes $13.65. That's the 35% discount per terabyte per month. So Love that's it. what you'll see on Anacode's website. Yeah, very cool. So, those, so that's just is that the main source of revenue? You're just going to stick with that? Or is there any other additional streams that you've been able yeah, to? Yeah, well, so, there? you know, Amazon has competitors. Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud Platform are competitors. So after we launched the Anacode storage service, 2x faster and 35% more affordable per month on AWS, we'll move to Microsoft Azure and then we'll move to Google Cloud Platform. And hopefully, after some number of years, we'll have a decent penetration percent of the market that used to pay Amazon monthly for storage will now pay Anacode monthly for storage. Which is at what, $6 billion or something like that? $8 billion. $8 billion. Yeah. right. So 20% of $40 billion a year. 
Phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, it's a big goal, but it doesn't sound like there's a lot of uh, companies you have to kind of penetrate to be able to get that revenue share. That's the weird yes. thing about it is you're look, you're looking at a very, very small tight group, you know, that yes. has and, the majority. And of who doesn't want cheaper storage? Who doesn't want faster storage? Yeah. It's an easy sell. So, so as far as like um, cloud and IOT, a lot of those things, I do kind of like to bounce over that because people don't understand it. They say that the internet of things is like, there are a lot of people that are saying IOT is like the way of the future. Cloud storage is the way of the future. You don't control your data, all that stuff. You know, you have to control your data. What are your thoughts on like IOT as far as like everything being connected inside your house and 5G and then all these different things going on the cloud? I mean, do you have, I'm sure you have a lot to talk about in that area. I, I have some things to talk about, and a lot of it is uh, what all the cloud vendors do. So they use encryption to keep the data safe. So if you're, uh, let's say you're Wells Fargo Bank and you don't want Bank of America snooping your data, well, Wells, uh, Bank of America doesn't want Wells Fargo snooping their data either. So you have to encrypt both of them. And there is a, there is a, a way that Anacode can provide uh, encryption along with compression. And that That's would be cool. useful, but I'm not going to talk about that today. So, yeah, so it does uh, have some, some additional ways that you can, you can provide additional value after the initial sure. kind of, once you're into the, once you're, once you got that 8 billion, right. Then you can expand in all these other additional yeah, and, and, areas. And, uh, your audience will be very familiar with uh, the fact that uh, cloud is a hot button topic. Within yeah. cloud, microservices, containers, and Kubernetes are a hot-button DevOps topic, the software development, cloud-native. And Anacode is in the middle of all that. We're doing storage using containers software, microservices. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, it sounds like it's, a, it's, some, it's where we're going to be heading to. And with 5G and everything essentially becoming invisible... <laughs> Uh, and everything being on the cloud, you know, they're going to be looking for ways to be able to reduce their um, yeah, I, time I, I and a, be more efficient. I want to answer your earlier question about IoT, information, you know, Internet of Things stuff. So I will uh, let me call it machine generated data. Okay. Even though machines generate the data and machines consume the data, somewhere in there, the format they choose, humans want to look at the data if they want to every once in a while. They don't want to very often, but that causes certain decisions that mean that IoT data is highly compressible, losslessly compressible. So uh, machine data, have you, have you heard the phrase analytics? Most businesses want to know, like, how many customers from Peoria, Illinois, hit our website yesterday. Right. Or, you know, how many uh, size 12 shoes with blue trim did we sell yesterday? Mm -hmm. So the whole analytics business is probably 200 billion a year. And uh, there is a relationship, I won't go into very much detail, but there is a relationship between losses, compression, and analytics that I think Anacode will explore uh, within 12 months. Super cool. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's a, there's a we're on a, a rise right now, I think, as far as the acceleration of, of technology being advanced in almost every area of our society. So there's lots of different ways you can go into it. Uh, fantastic. So my, the last thing I want, we want to talk about in the show is just pandemic uh, and how like everything's been uh, transitioned and, and changed through this. I know that your Anacode is, you know, just kind of getting off the ground as far as um, like first clientele, but have you seen, have you seen any changes this year or any notable like 
things that maybe are sparking new interest? I would say yes. And uh, if anything, the whole COVID-19 uh, experience has caused companies to accelerate their move to the cloud. So you have a lot more companies saying we need to do our digital transformation sooner. Where do we go? AWS, Azure, GCP, Alibaba, Oracle, IBM. You know, there's lots of places you could go. But AWS and Azure and GCP are taking the lion's share. So that's perfect for Anacode because as these companies move to cloud with their digital transformation, they all need storage. And if they could get cheaper storage, then that's what they're going to pick. Yeah, 100%. Um, so with all these like new huge companies, uh, for example, all these like, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've worked with Ty Lopez in the past and he recently got like Pier One uh, and Dress Barn. And a lot of these companies, he had, they had all these stores, but then they shut everything down. Now, you know, they're reducing, going from like 6,000 employees down to like a team of 10. Everything's being done online. I feel as if the majority of companies are being forced to do more of an online kind of storage, um, you know, sales. Like everything's going to be online, you know, and if you want your clothes or your food or pretty much anything, it's going to have to be done online through an application of some sort. And all of that data has to be stored online. Do you think that Amazon is, and all these other companies are kind of getting, they're going to get overwhelmed to the point that Anacode is going to be a phenomenal solution? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I mean, there's a huge opportunity for that right now, you know, just because of literally everything. Uh, it's odd. I mean, I rarely, no, I mean, malls are completely shut down, right? Uh, you know, it's all, I rarely go, I was like, first time I went to the grocery store the other day out of, for months and months and months. And it was a weird experience. Like it reminded where, me. Where I was are like, you geographically? San Diego. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the, I mean, obviously the virus has hit, you know, San Diego pretty hard as well. And, you know, it's, it's just odd to see the, the limited amount of people that are at stores or walking around or shopping. Um, so it feels like everything is going to be, and, and the more, the more that people shop online, the more, then more data the company's going to have to store about their products online to get people to purchase them, right? So they're not going to be able to just show a picture, you know, like they like they have in the past. They'll have to have some kind of 3D image. Yeah, a bunch or, of text and reviews. and Yeah, or, or even some additional like software where, you know, it scans your body and you can just like throw the clothes on and see if you see if you like it, you know, just by looking at it in the virtual sense. Um, all that additional data has to be stored somewhere. So you know, be able to reduce the, the, the cost and the time and all that stuff is, it's phenomenal. It's a great direction going and it's right. We're literally on that whole, like the cusp of all those things. So it's really cool. Um, great. So, so anything you're looking for right now, as far as the, cause you know, we, we have a lot of listeners that, you know, our, our VCs and, uh, other, you know, I have a lot of different connections have been in, you know, many different startups. And, um, so is there any, any specific companies or connections that you're looking for to further Anacode and, and what you're doing? Here? Uh, any, anybody that's storing their data on, on cloud, especially on AWS S3, which is the leader in you know, cloud storage, uh, uh, check out the Anacode website, anacode.io, and uh, you know, sign up. Yeah, two times faster, guys. I mean, honestly, it'd save you money. Uh, and then, you know, uh, going into the future, it sounds like, you know, every single company is going to be able to utilize something like this. So, uh, 
Hey, thank you so much, Al, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, and just kind of like diving into a really cool uh, Silicon Valley story. Did you want to kind of glance on the whole uh, the, the whole Hendrix, uh, <laughs> the Richard, real Rich, Richard Hendrix story real quick? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that. And if people just want to go to the HBO website, you can, you can Google Silicon Valley HBO and you'll get all the info you want. There we I go, guys. So <laughs> I'm going to check it out. <laughs> I went to Stanford and uh, there is a professor there named Saki Weitzman, W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N. And those of you who have watched Silicon Valley, the first series, the first year, uh, they had a show that called the Weitzman. They had a show that featured the Weitzman score. That's basically like if you get more compression, but you you have to do a lot more work. It basically trades those things off. So you hear uh, Richard Hendricks, the character, saying, "Well, we have a Weitzman score of like three point six or something like that." Or I don't even know what the number was. Um, so what's interesting to me, my connection to that is I know Tsaki Weitzman. I know Tsaki Weitzman at Stanford. And he had a grad student, a PhD student named Vineeth Misra, who was also a summer student at Samplify. And Vineeth called me in November of 2014. I was still at Amazon. And he asked me to participate in the Stanford Compression Forum. And at first I thought, what the, that was weird. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to be on a panel talking about new uses for compression. And that was exactly what I was doing at Samplify. You know, who, who knew that you could use lossy compression for medical imaging or base stations or all these weird things. Now, uh, nobody wanted that. Nobody was willing to pay for lossy because they were like, well, what if we miss Aunt Mabel's tumor because of lossy compression? That's going to put us <laughs> out of business. Right. So, and, and that was at a time where I didn't care or know to care about uh, sales and revenue and profit and all that stuff. Ten years yeah. later... I'm the CEO of Anacode, and I have educated myself a lot about cloud and a lot about storage and a lot about revenue and profit and a lot about losses compression. Seriously. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a very, very interesting transition going from, you know, GTE and then Atari and then, you know, lossy 23 mil creator and then going into this. That really just shows you, you know, people you know, need to understand that, you know, it's not always uh, such an easy road. You know, it's not always like, oh, I just hit my first company. It was phenomenal. And, yep. you know, it was great. A lot of times, you know, there's those times where, you know, the, you do go into debt. You do file bankruptcy. Everyone gives crap to Donald Trump file <laughs> bankruptcy seven you times. Fired, you get laid off. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just like, that's it's just. Valley. You know, you get another chance. All of these, all of the transitions that you did, though, throughout your career really did lead into what you're doing currently right now. And if you didn't have those opportunities and those yeah. failures, you know, it wouldn't have led to this. And so if, you if know. Samplify hadn't have failed, then I wouldn't have ever figured out Anacode, which is yeah. going to be a lot more valuable. <laughs> a lot more valuable. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll thank you so much for being on the show. I wish you all the best. We'll stay connected. Um, and we'll have to touch base uh, later on this year or next year uh, and see, you know, how Anacode is doing and, and uh, hopefully hope to give you a continued support. Great. Thanks for hosting me. Thanks for listening to the iSmart Podcast Show. If you are a business owner with multiple streams of income or professional who would like to be on the daily program, please visit iSmartNetworks.com slash guest. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. 
If you do that, tag us with hashtag iSmartPodcast. Each month, we scour Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. We pick one winner from each platform, and you get crowned king or queen of that social media. What do you win? We'll promote you and your business to our media fans totally free. Can you also hook us up? In your podcast player right now, please give us a thumbs up or a rating and review. We promise to read it all and take action. We believe that every person has a message that can positively impact the world. Your feedback helps us fulfill that mission. While you're at it, hit that subscribe button. You know why? Tomorrow. That's right. Seven days a week, you are going to be inspired and motivated to succeed. 15 minutes a day. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a part of the iSmart Podcast.